in a time in which there is great danger, I think, of churches simply capitulating to political or ideological programs. Bart has a way of presenting the church with an independence and its own message that has something unique to say to the world, that you can't just superimpose a a policy platform and, and capture what the gospel is. And so that's consistent throughout his life. And I, I'm intrigued by that. I think that's very important. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today, our guest is Dr. Kimlin Bender, who is a professor of Christian theology at Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University. We're talking with Dr. Bender today about 20th century German theologian Karl Barth and what we can learn from Barth for, as pastors uh, for our life in the church and our ecclesiology. Let's get right into the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to the CPT podcast. We're very excited to have Kimlin Bender joining us today. Welcome, Kimlin. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. So, Kimlin is a, a, a Bart scholar, uh, other interests as well, has written a theological commentary on 1 Corinthians and and has other other interests, but we've invited him on today to, to talk specifically about Bart and just explore kind of Bart and his importance for pastor theologians today. So we're going to be digging into that in in just a minute. But first, uh, Kimlin, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your, your where you grew up, your educational journey, uh, your, your career. Give us a little bit of insight into who you are. Sure, Joel. Uh, yeah, I grew up in actually in North Dakota and attended Jamestown College. I grew up um, in a, a small rural community. I realized years and years, actually decades later, that every single family in my church was associated with agriculture. I think wow. every man was a farmer in my church. Mm. Um, I did not even think about that until later. Um, I, I attended Jamestown College and there... Um, fell in love with um, not only my call to the church, but a call to academic life and to the life of, of, of biblical studies and theology. And I had the great good fortune while I was there of having a teacher my freshman year whose name was James Edwards. He was at Jamestown College for years before he went to Whitworth College and took the Dale Bruner chair and later wrote commentaries on Luke and on Mark and the Pillar series. And I just had a wonderful time there with a number of teachers, uh, James Edwards and, and Gary Watts and others, Dennis Ockholm, who later went to Wheaton and then went to, I think, Azusa Pacific. And I, I fell in love there with, with a kind of um, academic uh, call that could serve the church and attended Fuller Seminary and then went to Princeton Theological Seminary for my PhD. And that's where I wrote uh, on BART. And from there, uh, went to the University of Sioux Falls, where I taught for 11 years, and am now at Truett Theological Seminary, Baylor University. So I, I'm interested in in this observation about your your church and being mostly farmers. That must bring a very particular flavor to congregational life. Uh, as you've reflected back on that, are there are there things that like theological themes that that emerged from from your your church experience growing up? 
Well, I think one thing it taught me is of people that live together for a long time, which is very different than many mm. communities today. So when you're my my parents lived on the same farm for 53 years mm. before they uh, retired um, and um, had to had to move because of my dad's health, but. One of the things that that does, I think, theologically, is it really forms you in how you live life together, if you can put it that way in a Bonhoeffer phrase. Um, you have to work through disagreements because no one is moving. You're going to be together in that church for a long time. And the formation I received there, uh, not only through the preaching of the pastor, but really through a form of life that was so influential on me uh, and people who loved me from a very young age all the way through my high school years until I went to college and beyond. Um, I, I can never say enough about that. That will always be with me. And like, the, the the values of, of loving Christ, of supporting uh, Christ's witness throughout the world, um, of hard work um, and the ethic of hard work, these kinds of things are, are very formative for me. Yeah, I feel like we could do a, a whole podcast conversation on the, on the ecclesiology of, of that kind of a small town farming church experience that's yeah it brings some really interesting themes that uh maybe many of us who grew up in the city and in more of a mobile world would not be able to to tap into quite as deeply as yeah. you've been able to yeah one of the other things that came to mind as i heard you describe the the men in your church being mostly if not exclusively farmers uh it called to mind the common agricultural stories, metaphors, uh, particularly in the teaching of Jesus uh, from Scripture. I wonder what role those had uh, in your upbringing or the church community, whether those were especially prominent. Uh, do you have any any thoughts or things to share on that? Yeah, I, I do think that one thing about understanding the, the New Testament and including the Old Testament and its imagery is that um, – so much of it is basically agrarian. It's tied to agriculture and it's tied to, you know, to to the care of animals and and things like that. And 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 those stories became very natural for me. I mean, I can picture my father, who's now passed on, walking out into a wheat field as it kind of flowed. It's beautiful to watch. I don't know if you've ever seen this. If you see a large wheat field in the wind and the way it flows, and he would go out and he would take a head of grain and he would kind of crunch it in his hand. And he would count the kernels and look at the quality of the kernels because he could tell just from one one head, you know, is it is it doing well? What did the kernels look like and things like this? So when you read the parable of the sower and where you sow and what the soil is like where it's sowed, uh, you know, sown, uh, these things are are very vibrant. I think if you if you've grown up that way, let me tell one other quick story. I've never shared this with it outside the classroom with anyone. Um, in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant is captured. By the Philistines. Do you know that story? Yep. First, if if you uh, think, yeah, if you think of that story, um, one of the things that it that they do when they return it is that they put, they hitch it to two, um, you know, oxen or cows that uh, who have unweaned calves, mm -hmm. and they just walk off and take it away. If anybody has ever weaned calves, what that means is separating calves from their mothers. Um, over when they grow older, they're taken off their mothers. Mothers will 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 bellow literally for a day to get to their calves. They do not like that. They do not move away from their calves. So in that story, when you read that story, if you know how cattle are, yes, uh, you you recognize how miraculous that event is. That they would just walk away from their calves and take and take off for Israel, so to speak. Uh, 
Mm. So there's little things like that. Of course, that's just one small example, but I don't know any commentary that's really written about that. Mm. And so these are things that, and of course, you know, modern agriculture is very different. I recognize that. And certainly there are many books written around the world by people that are still in, in societies where they are much more agrarian uh, and comment on scripture that way. But I, I would say, at least in, in, in this country, a lot of that way of thinking is being is, is lost simply because of the changing of the culture in which we live. Yeah, that, that really does bring brings layers and color to our understanding of, of scripture that uh, brings a, a, a great deal of richness to it. So thanks for sharing that story with us. So I want to move now, now back to your story. Um, so you're at Princeton. Um, that's where, did, did you go to Princeton in order to study BART? Had you been introduced to BART at Fuller or did you end up at Princeton? And then, then really that's where you were introduced to BART in his works. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And no. So I was introduced to Bard in college. I read a book by uh, Donald Blesch, actually two volumes called yeah. Essentials of Evangelical Theology, which I think he published in 77 or 78. This is a long time ago now. Um, Blesch is kind of an overlooked figure in the history of evangelicalism in America, which is focused more, I think, on a, you know, rationalistic, sometimes strand. Um, Blesch probably did not fall into that. And he was also more amenable to reading Bart charitably and, and openly. And that had a profound influence, I think, on me, because that was some of the first theology I was reading. I was reading that perhaps as a, a sophomore in college, I would think. Um, and then when I was studying at Fuller, uh, so many of the people that I was reading, uh, everyone from, you know, James McClendon and Stanley Harwas, um, along with John Webster and Hans Frey, when you stand back behind them and you look at who's standing behind so much of their work in their own acknowledgement, it was it was Karl Barth. And so I thought I would probably write on Hans Frey. That was one of the interests I had. But for various reasons, um, uh, I decided to, to, to move to Bart himself uh, when I was at Princeton. So I had an interest in that before I went. But I think it wasn't until Princeton that I kind of settled on what I was going to do exactly in my dissertation. And tell us about that. What what was your dissertation? Who, who were you working with? Uh, what are the themes that started to emerge as you really were delving into, into Bart's theology? And how did that begin to shape your understanding of, of Christian theology, of your vocation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have always been had a call to ministry and, and this call to academy, and I always feel like I live one with one foot in the church and with one foot in the academy. Um, I'm right now an interim pastor, a co-interim pastor. I've been a senior pastor. I've been an associate pastor and music minister. I've really served in churches all along the line. And if I'm not serving directly, I've been a uh, Sunday school teacher in churches in about four different states, uh, adult Sunday school. Um, and so for me, I wanted to do something that could um, – I was, I was interested in these theological questions, but I was also interested in the church. So ecclesiology was a way for me to, to, to work this out. Recently, I was having a conversation with Fred Sanders at, in, in Los Angeles at a conference, and uh, I was talking about 
how when you do ecclesiology, you kind of work backwards, but you do have to take up all the other doctrinal themes. You have mm. to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. You have to think about Christology. You have to think about pneumatology. You have to think, think about soteriology. Um, and of course, sacraments or ordinances um, and, and other questions. But all of those themes are tied into ecclesiology, just like uh, Bart says in one place, you can begin, theology is like a globe, you can put your finger on the globe and trace it to any other point on the globe. All the doctrines are really like that. But I think ecclesiology was a way for me to kind of work backwards, so to speak, to the doctrines of Trinity, Christology, Pneumatology, and they take prominence in the dissertation because they take prominence in Bart. Um, so ecclesiology also, of course, is where kind of the rubber meets the road of the church itself, right? So that was another way for me to think theologically about some things that could have some, some, you know, kind of more direct practical import. It's not to say that all doesn't eventually reach there, but but that was another interest I had. You asked about the people I I worked with: um, Dan Miliori, uh, Bruce McCormick, Ellen Cherry. That was my committee. Uh, George Hansinger had just come to Princeton. Um, those were the primary figures, I would say, of the work I did. So in your dissertation, you were working on Bart's ecclesiology. I think many people look to Bart on doctrine of the word, of revelation, Christology. Could you give us just a, a quick, as best as, as quick as you can, overview of Bart's kind of theological project? Because I'm sure there are people who are unfamiliar with Bart or maybe have some questions about Bart, maybe have heard things about Bart that they're un uneasy about, uncertain about, where to position him theologically. If you could give us kind of an overview of, of, of Bart's theology, and then uh, we can follow that up maybe with some questions about his, his ecclesiology. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very broad question, but it's an important one. And I do think that many people read Bart uh, across a wide spectrum with appreci some uh, appreciative, some critical, but appreciative, and some highly critical. And and those things are understandable. But what I would say is a number of things. Number one, I do think that Bart is the most important Protestant theologian to engage from the 20th century, even if one disagrees with him. And one of yes. the reasons is, is that his project is on a scope and scale that one has not seen since Thomas. Yeah. Um, th this is a, a magnum opus. And most, I think, open-minded listeners, even critical ones, will agree. I'm even reminded today of some persons who are quite critical of Bart, but they've made almost a cottage industry of being critical of Bart because there's enough material to engage. Um, the the other thing I would say is that Bart was a person who tried to think through the question of God's revelation in Christ in a in a in a massive way. Uh, the Church Dogmatics is the third dogmatics that Bart wrote, and it it's approaching ten thousand pages long. But it begins with a, a quite simple idea, which is that God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And that revelation in Christ has given us access to salvation, to God, to God's revelation in a way that nothing else does. Uh, there's something singularly unique about Christ. And then scripture attests to Christ and the proclamation of the church um, witnesses to that. Um, and so that threefold way of thinking, you know, that's very famous for its threefold form of the word of God, which has been influential on me. Um, just briefly, when I ask students to say, undergraduates, when I used to teach them, I'd say, say the first thing that comes in your head, word of God. And they always said the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then I would just read John 1. Mm -hmm. And I would say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then verse 14, you know, logos, sarx, again, I mean, the word becomes flesh. 
And so when we think about the word, before there is a word on a page, there is a word. Before there's a word written, whether by Moses or whether by Paul. And I think that that has to be really wrestled with oftentimes, to be quite honest, by conservative evangelicals more seriously, that scripture is attesting something. It's not just simply a book of information, but it is attesting to to Christ in the Old and New Testament. Jesus says this himself, of course, at the end of Luke, that the, the law and the prophets testify to me. And so I think Barr took that with incredible seriousness, and that opens up scripture to him in a certain way to really see it as a testimony to Christ from, from front to back. It protects him against, I think, anti-Judaism during the World War II period. He recognizes that one cannot separate the New Testament from the Old in any way because this is a united canon, that the preaching of the church proclaims the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I think there's something very powerful about that. It's not that the that Scripture doesn't give us information because it does, but that its ultimate um, purpose in the economy of God is to awaken us to faith and obedience in Jesus Christ, not simply to give us information. So I do think Bard is very helpful for that. There's so many other things I could say, but I do know that Scripture particularly um, is sometimes criticized. Let me say one final thing. There was a little book on Bart recently by an evangelical, I would say in the last 10 years, who says, yeah, uh, Bart sometimes can be uh, critical of certain theories of inerrancy and so forth, but he says, I've read the dogmatics and I can't find one place where Bart is critical of Scripture in the dogmatics of Scripture itself. So that's what I tell people all the time who are more critical on these questions. Read Bart himself and not people on Bart. Don't even read me, although I've written on this stuff quite a bit, actually, and on Bart and Scripture. But um, read Bart himself and see what he says, and then you can make up your own mind as you're working through your own critical questions of what he says. That's probably and a long think, enough answer. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great. Uh, I, I think one of the things I would just I would just add to to underscore what you're saying, and in, in my own reading of Bart, and I and I teach Bart in the seminary. As I talk about this with my students, you, you said a little bit ago about the the scripture's place in the in the economy of of God's purposes, mm-hmm. and, and I think that is what is has been really helpful both me and my own personal study with Bart and Bonhoeffer and coming to understand their theology of scripture, and then speaking about that with my students. It doesn't denigrate the scriptures. It pl- he places the scriptures in their proper economy mm-hmm. in, in a way that I I think is very profound and very powerful and and I have found in my own experience Bart has helped me to better trust the scriptures to better understand the reliability of the scriptures exactly because he places them in the economy of of God and God's mission and God's purposes in the world doesn't leave the scriptures kind of standing there by themselves trying to support a weight that I don't think they're intended to support, but, but they become the means by which God is at work to accomplish his purposes of revelation. Would it be fair to say that Bart has a different ontology of scripture than kind of the mainstream evangelical? Yeah. I'm, Right, and I, I'm I'm you know reticent to to pit these against each other because I actually think there's a lot more similarity than people might think. Um, yes, um, I've I've written on this. Bruce McCormick has written on this. gave a paper at Wheaton years ago on this. Um, yeah, I do think there are some differences. John Webster says 
that you know one of the things of the modern period is that the doctrine of scripture kind of migrated to the top of the dogmatic corpus um which is to say it it serves a kind of foundationalist purpose you yes. describe scripture and then you get on with talking about the trinity and christ and and spirit and so forth i do think for bart that is different i do think bart thinks yeah. primarily of the word as god's communication of his person of himself in history in christ and then scripture is both in the prophets looking forward to that that is the old testament and in the new testament the apostles looking back on that event so there is a kind of centrality to to christ and and of christ as the word that places the other two forms of the word scripture and preaching which for Luther actually was the when you think about Luther, Luther thinks of the Word of God as the proclaimed gospel, um, and there's a lot of similarities between Luther and Bart. Um, but that kind of conception is different than thinking about the Bible as a as a book of information. So I do think if you read, for example, Bart and you read Hodge, you do see different ways of coming at a question. They're they're quite striking, I think. Yeah, I I think it's brings a certain dynamism to the scriptures that is is very powerful and it that dynamism that the scriptures as attesting to the revelation of god again it it doesn't denigrate the scriptures but it does place them in this context and i I have found that to be very powerful in my own understanding of of the word yeah and how a mystery and a mediated yeah, I'd say a yeah. mystery and a majesty as well. Yeah. yeah. That yeah, can be lost sometimes in overly kind of boundaried and mechanistic and like tightly defined conceptions of of scripture um that can become dominant in, in certain evangelical circles, it seems to me. Yeah. Um so that's as as you know I'm not an expert on this the way you guys are but that's something that is striking to me that there's th- there is um you know inerrancy isn't going to be the kind of category but there's a really profound reverence uh nonetheless um and uh yeah that's always been really challenging um and helpful for me about about Bart yeah so- Thanks, Kimlin, for for that context. Now I want to I want to dig into ecclesiology. Hey, everybody! Just a quick preview of our annual theology conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians, which we will host in Chicago on October twenty third to twenty fifth. The evangelical tradition places the sermon at the center of church life. But what is our theology of preaching? Does it root the sermon in the miracle of God's word proclaimed or in human persuasiveness and personality? In our day, preaching is easily unmoored from its biblical, theological, and historical anchors. Too often, it has become a tool of celebrity. We have seen pulpits and preaching taken captive by political and pragmatic ideologies. We believe that the church must recapture the Apostle Paul's vision of preaching, preaching that comes not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This work will move us beyond homiletical 
technique. It will challenge our confidence in our own capacities and call into question methods that have subtly shaped our vision of the sermon and elevated human power. Church leaders must remind ourselves again that we are, first and foremost, servants, both of God's word and of God's people. We invite you to join us at the Center for Pastor Theologians 2023 conference, Power and the Pulpit, Recovering a Theology of Preaching. We'll be helped by speakers such as Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, Matthew Kim, Nicole Martin, Kevin Van Hooser, Jeremy Treat, Jennifer McNutt, special guest Mike Cosper, Caitlin Beatty, JT English, Trig Johnson, Jim Samra, Eric Redman, and a whole bunch of others. It's going to be a great conference where we will gather together to seek wisdom and share insight about this important act that we do as pastors and as the church every week. Once again, we invite you to join us for the CPT conference power and the pulpits. You can learn more and sign up to secure your spot at cptconference.com. So your your dissertation was on the Christological ecclesiology of, of Karl Barth that's been published as a book. Um, take us into Barth's ecclesiology. What are the what are the particular emphases or themes that you, that you have found helpful in him? Are there particular contours of Bart's view of the church that that you find can be helpful for for the church today? Yeah, I, I was. I thought you might ask this, and um, you know, when you ask someone on on something they've written a book on, they can go a bit. So I want to try and keep <laughs> this kind of brief. I will say though that Bart's. Um, Doctrine of the Church does develop over time, and I can't outline that whole development, but I do want to say that Bart is very disillusioned by the way that some churches and Christians and theologians in Germany line up before the first line up behind Germany's uh, support of the first world of, in, in the first world war, and this is a very famous thing that Bart has a break, so to speak, or or at least there's a great discontinuity and crisis for him between the theology of his teachers and his own thought, and that leads him to be quite critical of the church. He writes the Romans Commentary, the second edition particularly, which is very very critical of the church, and some people actually thought that he might leave it because he believed it had been captured by a kind of cultural program and by certain political agendas and ends. But Bart writes to his friend Ternazen, who's also a pastor, and says, not once did I think of leaving the church. Because if you read the Romans commentary carefully, you'll, you'll notice that Bart thinks the church is the place, the first place of God's judgment, right? Judgment begins with the household of God. But it's also, therefore, the place where mercy can, 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 be, can appear, because these are not separated for Bart. God's judgment and God's mercy, in a sense, go to get together. But he can't, he doesn't have a very robust, he has no robust doctrine of the church. That comes later in the Gerdigan Dogmatics, which he writes between uh, in the mid 20s. And then most fully, his most full uh, ecclesiology is in the church dogmatics. And I'll just highlight two things. Well, three things. Number one, in the first volume, things we've talked about, the church is the place where the word of God is proclaimed and spoken. The church is the place where scripture is read. Uh, the church is the place where Christ, in a, in a sense, walks out of the pages of the Bible and of the words of the preacher into the church. And so there's something very powerful about that already in volume one. 
but Bart doesn't have an ecclesiology per se. He has a, has a very formal ecclesiology. In, in volume two, he he grounds ecclesiology in the in the election of Christ. So the election of the church is grounded in the election of Christ, and that's fascinating in itself. And I don't really have time to unpack that. But the most full, what we think of as Bart's robust ecclesiology in its fullest sense, is really in volume four. Uh, the first three part volumes of, of volume four and Bart there deals with the church as this called community. He talks about the form that it takes. And one thing I really want to highlight is that um, about Bart's ecclesiology that I think are important is important is that Bart really focused that the church has its existence and has its reason for being. And in fact, it's very being only as it serves as a witness to God's gospel and to the to Christ. So mission or witness, whatever word we might prefer, is absolutely not only, it's not what the church does, it is it is God's uh, appointed witness in the world. It is its very existence. And Bart rediscovers this, and I think that alone is one of the things in the 20th century that Bart as a theologian should be known for. The church is simply not something that does mission. The church is God's mission in the world. And I think just an insight that you gestured at a, a bit ago. He's writing Romans. He's doing this as a pastor. Yes. Right? I mean, these these discoveries, these thoughts were percolating in him during World War One as he's pastoring a village church, ministering word and sacrament and getting engaged in social issues that the people of his church were were facing and I, I think, again, as the Center for Pastor Theologians, that's an important insight for us to to pause on for a moment, that, that Bart, these seeds were being sown while he was actively involved as a pastor, and that from that work is where the, the church dogmatics grew, and, and it was originally the Christian dogmatics, and then he mm-hmm. changed the title to the ch- or he started over again with the church yeah. dogmatics intentionally to ground the dogmatic thinking in the life of the church. Yeah, that's right. And Bart says, I mean, that's not only true in his very first lectures around 1914-15, thereabouts, um, that when he's working up to what will become the Romans commentary, he he acknowledges that the crisis of his thought has come in the context of ministry and how one can preach in this in this ministry and do ministry. And then way later, this is a constant theme through his life, he reflects on the church dogmatics and he says, you know, I wrote this for pastors. Mm-hmm. And it pleases him greatly when pastors read it. Um, I, I include references to that in, 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 in the book, How to Read Karl Barth for the Church, and, 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 and he says this very explicitly, that he takes joy in this and that he wrote it explicitly for this. And so, um, one of the things that, that Jim Edwards reminded me as I was working on that book is that the Church Dogmatics has an index. Now in in English, right? And and it it follows you there there are readings according to the Christian year. Um you can read the dogmatics these different kinds of ways and and that's because the editors like Torrance and others recognize that this would be a resource for pastors. And I do say kind of ruefully, I'm not sure if that's true anymore. I don't know how many pastors are reading the church dogmatics actually as a as a tool for preparation of sermons and so forth. Mm. But I think it, it's helpful. Uh, my friend Richard Burnett wrote a very fine book on Bart's uh, view of Scripture. And he says in that book, I think that Bart has over 15,000 references to Scripture, many of which are long, long small print excursies and exegetical investigations of Scripture. Mm. 
And um, I, I just, I find those very fruitful. In fact, I would say when I was in, in graduate school, before I was graduate school and seminary, I was deciding between going into New Testament studies and theology. So I have a deep love for New Testament studies to this day. And at that time, many of the things I was being exposed to were highly kind of historical, critical, archaeological, and so forth. But if I had been reading uh, later on people like Richard Hayes or Richard Baucom, I don't know how you read people like that and understand them without seeing Bart in the background, certainly of Hayes, of intertextuality and the way he reads. And, and, and so I, I do think there's something really fruitful about coming back to Scripture from Bart. And what I tell people, again, if they might be critical, is it will make you a better reader of Scripture. Even the things you might find in Bart that you disagree with are handled with such depth and and uh, incisiveness that it's going to send you back to Scripture to look at things again. Um, that's true of a whole host of not only the explicitly exegetical passages, but just how Ephesians 1 and Colossians have so formed Bart in the way he thinks about questions. So you mentioned your book, uh, Reading Karl Barth for the Church. Um, tell us about, about that book. Um, what were you, what, what is your, your purpose in writing that book? It's, my hunch is it's, it's rooted in some of this desire that you have to have pastors read Bart. And he can be intimidating. You look on the shelf mm-hmm. and there's these, you know, whatever it is, however many total number of of books that make up the four volumes of the church dogmatics. Did you write that kind of as a way to, to help pastors or what was your goal of writing the book? Yeah, that's exactly correct. The, the, from the very title, which I fought for that title, by the way, um, that from the very title. So there are many good, fine introductions to Bart's thought. I mean, excellent introductions. Uh, I could name numerous ones of them and they usually look something like this. Chapter one is Bart's life. Chapter two is kind of Bart's early theology. Chapter three, you know, kind of working through his crises onward to the church dogmatics. And then at the end of the book, there there will be certain themes taken up from the dogmatics. And there are really excellent books like that. But I wanted to provide a different kind of book. Uh, This is not a book that is a kind of mile-wide, inch-deep book. This is a maybe inch-wide, mile-deep book. And that is, it's a commentary just on volume one of the church dogmatics. And so that means I still believe myself, and not all Bard scholars would agree, but I still believe that reading volume one before one gets to the magisterial volume two on election or the even more magisterial volume four on atonement is important and helpful to see commonalities of themes that actually are consistent through the dogmatics. And I also think it's important because there Bard deals with questions that pastors deal with every day, like Christ, scripture, and preaching. And so the commentary, it's a very accessible commentary, but it just simply does two things. Number one, it simply helps walking through the entire volume one. Every section of volume one is covered um, in that book. And then at the end, I have commentary myself on how these questions might be pertinent to the church today. So let me give one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked a lot about scripture, so I'll leave that go and, and turn to preaching. In preaching, I talk about how today Bart gives a kind of emphasis on content and the content of the gospel that staves off two dangers I see in preaching today. One of them is moralism, and that mm. really plagues the, the, the left and the right. Mm. 
If the right is kind of sometimes consumed with a personal moralism, the left can be concerned with a social moralism. And preaching simply becomes, in a sense, in the worst case, a browbeating of a congregation mm-hmm. into um, you know, living a certain kind of life. Preaching simply becomes moral instruction. And on the other side, I think another danger is aestheticism, a kind of love for form for its own sake, a kind of cleverness for its own sake. Um, and I think there again that can that can affect uh, people on a on a wide theological spectrum. And for Bart, preaching is the proclamation of the gospel, and form is really secondary to that. It serves a function, but it's secondary. And moralism really is a life of obedience lived in faithfulness to that. And that really changed my preaching. One last thing, uh, I think my early sermons as a pastor were highly moralistic. I think that's true of many young pastors. Um, mm-hmm. They're 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 really highly moralistic. And I recognize that basically preaching should be preaching the good news of the gospel. And that wins people over to a different life. It doesn't browbeat them into a life. And so I think what I try to do with the book is show places for pastors today and others how Bart's theology might might speak into the present situation. There's lots of other things at the end of the chapters, but that's the example I'd give. That sounds like a, a fascinating and and excellent resource. Um, if, if people are intimidated by by bart i think this is a, a wonderful place to begin and and i certainly would agree that uh, what he's doing methodologically in one one is so important to understand uh and then that the threefold form of the word of god i think connecting into our early part of our conversation it it helps to see what how bart understands scripture and therefore what we are doing when we're when we're proclaiming it. So I think that's a, a great opportunity for folks who maybe haven't read much of Bart to dig in there and and begin their journey with him in in with your with your text. Uh, and you're you're talking our language as we're moving into this this Lily uh, preaching grant that we're going to be working on as the CPT over the next few years. We're we're going to be digging into some of these these themes and are are excited to be on that journey and. And we talked a bit about you participating in that with us, so we're looking forward to that. As we as we close up our time here, um, you've you've certainly made a, a case for why pastors should be reading Bart. I, I would love you to give you a, 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 another minute or two just to continue to offer that encouragement. How does how, how do you see other ways that Bart's theology can really? help pastors today in, in what we are, the challenges that we're facing as pastors today? How, how does Bart come alongside us and, and help equip us for, for our task today? Yeah, I think there are many ways. So, I'm just going to choose one for the sake of time, and I want to kind of drive this home. I think Bart is, the, is perhaps the least ideological, ideologically captured theologian that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um. Bart was never tempted at all by national socialism, not only in the 30s, not in the late 20s. He saw it for what it was when you read his letters very, very early on. It's remarkable. The Barman Declaration, which is such a significant um, um, declaration against national socialism and its attempt to, to co-opt the churches, um, is very brief. It can be read, and, and Bart is, is its principal architect, so to speak. Of course, it comes out of a synod. But it it Bart Bart writes that, and you have to ask how is that the case? And I think Bart has a sense that the gospel is free, mm-hmm. and it cannot be given over to ideological capture. 
that also means that the gospel cannot be that that the gospel cannot be captured by a political platform of any kind, left or right. And there's a kind of independence then to the church and to the gospel that that can be freed from ideological capture. I think that's incredibly important today. Mm. Um, on every side, this is what I'm really kind of I uh, kind of working on myself. This is something in Bard I've thought about and known, but that's become much more important to me. Of what is it about the way Bart read scripture and how is it about how Bart thought theologically that protected him from being captured by any form of ideology? Um, he just he just simply wasn't captured by them. Hmm. And uh, all of his thoughts when he did ally himself with certain economic or political programs were always pragmatic and they were always subservient to the gospel. And so I think in a time in which there is great danger, I think, of churches simply capitulating to political or ideological programs, Bart has a way of presenting the church with an independence and its own message that has something unique to say to the world, that you can't just superimpose a, a policy platform and, and capture what the gospel is. And so that's consistent throughout his life, and I, I'm intrigued by that. I think that's very important. And I think that's a resource for pastors that still believe that the primary task of the church is to witness to Jesus Christ in a way that is that that witnesses to the freedom of the gospel and not simply sub, being subsumed by a kind of political, economic, or ideological program. I think we need to rediscover this the strange new world in the Bible hmm. again. Right? It's it's foreignness, it's challenge. To us, I think that's one of the things I, I agree. Consistently, Bart pushes against domesticating the scriptures. Yes, right, mm. and, and and allowing the scriptures to become our tool for mm-hmm. our our purposes. And I think that is a vital word for pastors today. So, Kimlin, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast for uh, taking us through Bart, and would en- encourage. Uh, our listeners to to pick up some some Kimlin Bender books and and dig in and um, I, I know that there will be fruit that is born of that. So thanks again for being with us. Thank you both very much. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The host for today's episode was Joel Lawrence. Our producer and editor is Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.